A quarter of all sitting hours in the Parliament just ended were under urgency. Insight looks at whether the opportunities for public input into lawmaking are on the decline. In 2008, after nearly a decade on the opposition benches, National was raring to go. It tends to be the first term that sees the biggest rush of legislation, particularly if you've had a long period in opposition and been sitting and thinking about ideas for some time. The Minister of both Justice and Commerce, Simon Power, says his office has been behind roughly a quarter of all the new legislation. In Labour's first term under the MMP electoral system from 1999 to 2002, roughly 220 bills were passed. The national-led government has passed 293. I'm Philip Tolley and in this Radio New Zealand Insight, I will look into claims this government has used the device of urgency to rush bills through and that there's been less opportunity for scrutiny. The Green Party's parliamentary musterer, Kennedy Graham, says the government's legislative agenda was clear from the beginning. This government clearly had a major legislative program in mind before it took office. I know some ministers personally had uh, that already for steamrollering, to the point where now and again I thought it might have been seen as hyperactive. Labour's justice spokesperson Charles Chevelle is less than flattering when characterising the lawmaking of this past parliamentary term. I think what you see in this government is a lack of respect for the rule of law and it manifests itself in a number of ways. First of all, there's an excessive resort to the use of urgency and it's a, it's a use of urgency uh, not so much to sort of clear the decks and get non-contentious pieces of legislation through the parliament, it's the use of urgency to deprive New Zealanders of their right to submit to a select committee and the problem we have with that is that we know that it will result in flawed legislation. National had signalled a busy agenda with a list of changes it wanted to introduce in its 100-day action plan. ACT's Deputy Leader John Boscowen says from his perspective as a support partner, the plan changes were all well flagged. Certainly uh, immediately after the election in 2008, uh, Parliament sat extended hours to pass a number of pieces of legislation that the National Party had campaigned on. Um, as part of our confidence and supply agreement, we agreed to support that legislation and to support urgency. The National Party came in uh, with a mandate to make changes and they wanted to be seen to be making those changes as quickly as possible. So in that regard they may well have used urgency more than on previous occasions. But as a general rule I don't think it's been abused at all. The Māori Party's Te Urua Flavel says supporting urgency is part of its agreement with the National Party. That is one of the conditions that we've had to go with um, where there are uh, procedural uh, matters uh, that was written into the agreement as well that we were bound to follow those uh, so while we might have preferred uh, that legislation go out for public scrutiny the theory was that uh, urgency was to be used for non-controversial uh, legislation but that's I suppose in the eye of the beholder. National argues the public was well aware of its manifesto and that by winning the election the party had been given a mandate to proceed. Simon Power believes urgency has not been used disproportionately even at the start of the term when a whole host of legislation was being passed. I don't recall at that stage urgency being used particularly excessively prior to Christmas in the first year there, 2008, we used some urgency from memory in relation to two or three different things. That wasn't uncommon. 
the advice I've got is our use of urgency in the first term has been broadly similar to the, gov the last government's use of urgency in the first term. Kennedy Graham outlines the practical implications urgency often has on individual MPs. The joys of being given a bill anything from one day in advance to one hour or less in advance. One bill, sometimes 500 pages, certainly 50 to 100 pages, and expected without referral to select committee to make insightful comment that serves the people of New Zealand. I mean, that is an abuse. Some of those changes were contentious, including the introduction of the national standards for reading, writing and maths in primary schools and the introduction of a 90-day probation period for new workers and small businesses. United Future is another national support partner. Its leader, Peter Dunn's view of parliamentary proceedings, is shaped by more than 27 years as an MP. He is of the opinion that urgency has not been overused in general, but that there have been exceptions. I think in the case that occurred after the last election, there were some items that could, in retrospect, have gone through a longer process. I think particularly the legislation around national standards, for instance. But there were some measures of the tax changes which had to be done quickly because they had to take effect by particular dates. And so a select committee process simply wouldn't have been feasible in that, in that particular situation. But generally I'm wary of the concept that we've got an electoral mandate to do this, therefore we can ram it through regardless. And I think what happened in uh, late 2008, early 2009 was probably at the, at the margin of what would be acceptable practice. But has this government handled things differently from those in the past? A senior law lecturer at Victoria University, Claudia Geiringer, is one of those involved in a project funded by the Law Foundation looking into the use of urgency in Parliament between 1987 and 2010. One very unusual feature about the way this government has used urgency is the way it used it very quickly at the beginning of its term. For example, in the few weeks between getting elected and the end of the sitting year that the national government used urgency to avoid select committee scrutiny on seven occasions. Now to put that into context, in nine years of Labour government, Labour-led government under MMP, bills did not go to select committee on 15 occasions altogether. And perhaps the main justification that was given to us by National Party people that we spoke to for this was that National had advertised many of these bills in its manifesto. Now we saw that as a little bit problematic because just because you've gone to the public on a broad program that includes particular pieces of legislation doesn't mean you've got sign off not just on those legislative policies but on all of the detail, uh, technical detail of those policies such that there's no benefit uh, to be gained by select committee scrutiny. Simon Power says most legislation does need to go through the select committee process in order for wide-ranging input, but not all. He cites as one example the need to respond to a court decision that might lead to other cases falling over. This parliament has ended with heated debate on just such legislation. The Supreme Court decision on an appeal by those charged in the Uruwera police raids prompted the government to introduce an urgent law change on covert police surveillance. In announcing the new legislation, the Prime Minister John Key stated the court case had forced the government to take action as the decision could undermine police investigations already underway. This is not a position the government is satisfied with, nor do I believe most New Zealanders would be comfortable with. Cabinet therefore today decided to take to Parliament a piece of legislation 
temporarily suspending the effect of this decision. But there was a range of objections, including this from Labour's leader, Phil Goff, over the use of urgency to get legislation into place quickly. I've seen too much of urgency in this House where Parliament rushes stuff through, doesn't think it through, creates more problems than it solves. Urgency is a procedural device that can be used when there is an emergency requiring immediate action, a legislative mistake that needs correcting, or where there are commercial factors at play, such as people possibly buying up large before a tax increase on a particular item. But most often it's a matter of securing extra parliamentary time, as Claudia Geiringer explains. Urgency is a tool for governments to extend their sitting hours. And the sitting hours of the House are in fact extremely modest. And all the politicians we've spoken to, well, almost all of them, feel that the government or Parliament does not have enough regular sitting hours to get through the government's legislative programme. Worries about the use of urgency to extend sitting hours prompted the recommended changes to Parliament's operating rules, the standing orders, that were adopted in the past week. Those new rules will come into force once a new government is formed after the elections. The government will be able to obtain extra hours to get through its legislative programme by extending the sitting of the House without having to go into urgency. The Speaker, Lockwood Smith, says Victoria University's project on urgency has shown how often the device is used to make progress. It's given the process a bit of a bad name because urgency should be used to advance legislation that, that is urgent, if you like. And, and so the idea of the extended sitting hours to, is to enable the government to advance, to progress its business in a more orderly way. And the government can move the House into extended hours, but only one morning a week, one time a week, and only to advance the stages of legislation that are on the order paper. The government cannot use that proposed provision to take a bill through all stages, for example. But Claudia Geiringer says urgency can mean more than just gaining extra time in the House. Legislation goes through a number of different stages. First reading, second reading, goes off to select committee actually between those two. Committee of the whole House, third reading. And there are stand down periods between each of those stages. Just a day or two it differs between the different stages, but enough time for people in the House and the public to digest what's occurred at the previous stage. If legislation is put through urgency for more than one stage at a time, those stand-down periods disappear. The most significant effect of urgency is that if the first reading and second reading of a bill are taken together under urgency, the bill will not be referred to select committee. So that normal six-month period when a bill goes to select committee for the public to make submissions and for there to be a very close examination of the text of the bill and the policy behind it will not occur. Labour's Charles Chevelle says even when there's general agreement over a bill, it's still better to allow an opportunity for scrutiny and input at the select committee stage to make sure the proposed law is robust. He gives as an example moves to defer the census because of the Canterbury earthquakes. Probably that was the right thing to do, but there are all sorts of questions arising out of the way in which it was done. We're deferring effectively for seven years, so there'll be a seven-year gap between the last census and the next one. What will that mean in terms of comparing data between now and then? What will it mean for the enrolment of voters and the changes to electoral boundaries? These were all questions that we raised in the House, and we said, look, send it to a select committee for two weeks. Just ask people for their views. Let's, let's hear from statistical experts about what this might mean. The government just wouldn't do it. 
The Justice Minister, Simon Power, describes that legislation as straightforward and says Labour voted against it because of worries about process rather than content. He maintains there was always respect for the parliamentary system and its checks and balances. I'm a great believer in the parliamentary system and it works. So uh, we had some legislation in the area of the use of audio-visual links, for example. I was in my office listening to the debate. It was my piece of legislation. I was involved in other things. I was persuaded by listening to the debate that I'd gone too far on one point, went down to the House, tabled an amendment, and we changed the law. Went from having a number of political parties in opposition opposed to the legislation to it passing unanimously. So the Parliament actually works. You know, ministers who are prepared to engage with the debate and listen to the debate means they, that those debates can have an impact on the way the minister thinks. In my case, that's, that's true. Statistics compiled by the Parliamentary Library show that up until the end of 2010, this government introduced urgency 24 times. Simon Power's office says urgency has been used five times this year, bringing the total for this government to 29. That compares with urgency being used 22 times in the whole of the first term of the last Labour government. The Honourable Simon Power. Mr Speaker, I move that urgency be accorded the passing through the remaining stages of the Freedom Camping Bill, the Student Loan Scheme Bill, the Taxation, Tax Administration and Remedial Matters Bill, the duties of statutory officers... The Urgency Project indicates that MMP has restrained the use of urgency for government since 1996. The opposition by the Greens to its use is thought to have influenced the most recent Labour government, which used the procedural device to speed legislation through all its stages infrequently. However, Claudia Geiringer from Victoria University's Law Department says the figures show this national-led government stands out for bypassing the normal procedure. This government has used urgency a lot to avoid select committee scrutiny. So um, in the entire period of our study, including the pre-MMP governments, the most any one parliament has used urgency to avoid select committee scrutiny is on 20 occasions, and that was the 1996 to 1998 government. This government, by the end of 2010, had already used urgency the same number of times, that is on 20 occasions, which means that by the end of their term in parliament, they will have used urgency to avoid select committee scrutiny on more, more occasions than any other government in our study. Simon Power believes his government has acted responsibly and made provisions for analysis even when the House was sitting under urgency. The government has allowed question time every time we've had urgency, which is not something the last government did when they took the House into urgency. They simply used all of the time that was available. We have discussed urgency in a very open way with other political parties and said, well, we're prepared to have question time each day while we were in urgency in order that the Parliament still had an opportunity to scrutinise the performance of the executive. I actually think that that is a relatively new revelation and it wouldn't surprise me actually if it remains um, for years ahead. Labour's Charles Chevelle believes that maintaining question time during periods of urgency is better than not having it, but he argues it should be there as a matter of right, not as something granted by the executive. In the next Parliament, changes to the standing orders mean ministers will also be required to give a reason for moving urgency. Dr Smith says rather than formally limiting the use of urgency or getting the Speaker involved, the Standing Orders Committee recommended strengthening the government's political accountability. Really ministers have to give a, a more comprehensive uh, reason why the House should go into urgency than in the past, but 
um, we will need to feel our way with what that is. You'll recollect in the past often a minister would get to their feet and say that they move the House, take urgency to progress business or something like that. Now, that won't be acceptable. The committee's report also referred to the bypassing of the select committee stage as a point of significant public concern and said the process should be left out only in exceptional circumstances. But the Justice Minister, Simon Power, says he's been using another technique for getting feedback, especially for what he describes as complex proposed legislation. We've done things slightly differently, in particular with things like discussions around cartel legislation and I've been rewriting securities law legislation. We've had a greater use of exposure bills, which means that even before the government introduces the legislation, there's been extensive consultation with specialist stakeholders. This is a method actually that I've found has worked incredibly well for complex matters. In other words, rather than having the select committee time clogged up with technical discussions about whether it should be must or may, um, actually allowing the select committee the time to discuss the policy direction. Mr Power says the drafts of the exposure bills mean specialists can crystallise issues of concern. But Labour's justice spokesperson Charles Chevelle is not supportive of input by invitation only and prefers what he sees as greater democracy through wider participation in the analysis of planned laws. Some of that process, however, was put to one side for new legislation that followed the extraordinary events that hit Canterbury. A great deal of consideration has been given to how extensive the bill should be. And in the end, there was unanimous political support for the first Earthquake Response and Recovery Act, which meant there was no need for urgency. The new law allowed orders and council to suspend or make exemptions to virtually all existing laws, except the Bill of Rights and the Electoral Act. The Executive Council, which considers those orders, is made up of Ministers of the Crown. But the Earthquake Recovery Minister, Jerry Brownlee, told the House there was nothing sinister in that transfer of power. There would be no minister, I can say, who is in any way looking at this bill and thinking it's an opportunity to abuse some of the powers that are in it. There will be lots of constraints around that particular activity. However, the legislation was accompanied by very public criticism from legal experts worried that the law created a dangerous precedent. A law professor at Otago University, Andrew Geddes, was one of 27 legal scholars who signed an open letter to the public expressing serious concerns over the bill. I am a member of the Legislation Advisory Committee. I got a specialist interest in constitutional matters, uh, particularly regarding electoral processes and parliamentary activities. Talking to me in the old cabinet rooms of the historic government buildings in Wellington, Professor Geddes detailed his qualms with the earthquake legislation. It happened so quickly. Uh, it really, no one knew it was going to be there until uh, it arrived on the Monday morning, and so no one really had a chance to see what was being proposed. In terms of its actual content, it gave the executive branch of government very wide-ranging powers to amend other bits of legislation. So it took away from Parliament that lawmaking process and gave it to the executive branch without very much by way of control or very much by way of oversight. There was a deliberate attempt to try to keep the courts out of looking at it and it relied very heavily on good faith. But it's never a good idea in a constitution just to place power in people's hands on faith. Act's deputy leader John Boscowan acknowledges some reservations as well. I think everyone has, has concerns because it was quite wide-sweeping legislation with quite wide-ranging powers, uh, but to date uh, those powers don't appear to have been abused and the system seems to be working well.
Professor Geddes thinks the second round of earthquake legislation passed in February showed the government had listened to the criticisms of the first round of earthquake legislation, despite the comprehensive parliamentary support. I think what the widespread support was an understandable desire to stand alongside Christchurch. I mean, this was legislation to fix up Christchurch, and it's very churlish to poke fingers at it or to say there's anything wrong with it. I think some of the criticisms that were raised with regards to the first legislation were taken on board, and certainly when you see the second round of legislation that followed the second earthquake, there was more thought given to the need for checks and balances in the process. Peter Dunn believes there can be dangers in such an approach by not only setting a precedent, but by creating opportunities for the misuse of such laws at a later stage. I think we've got to be quite vigilant, um, both in terms of what pieces of legislation we subject to that type of passage, but also reviewing what happens post the event. Uh, is that requirement still necessary? Do we still need those provisions? If not, when do we kill them? But the Canterbury earthquake laws are not the only example of extra power being concentrated in the hands of a few. Preparations for the Rugby World Cup were deemed to require the transfer of special authority to the Rugby World Cup Minister, Murray McCulley. The World Cup hosting rights were secured for New Zealand under a Labour-led government, and Charles Chevelle concedes his party was also considering extraordinary powers to secure the competition. That said, he's willing to question how necessary it really is to put to one side rules that would apply at any other time. It's a question of always looking at whether you've gone too far, I think. Do you need to suspend all the rules that that legislation would allow to be suspended? Or maybe should we back ourselves a bit more and, uh, and be confident in our ability as a, an attractive rugby destination not to have to do all that? The Greens' Kennedy Graham is blunt, describing the move as a rush of blood to the head. You can justify certain things in a crisis situation like Christchurch. You can't possibly do it with rugby. It is a pattern of behaviour. It's a syndrome on the part of this government that uh, it does know better and uh, it has a, almost a natural mandate to govern. And so on. It doesn't sit well with MMP. It doesn't sit well with most of the Kiwis, I think. Andrew Geddes believes politicians default to a let's-just-get-it-done position. Parliament and the executive government are so bound up that often the difference between them is forgotten. And where something is seen to be necessary, the response of Parliament quite often is simply, OK, we'll give you, the executive branch, the ministers, the power to do it, just go off and do it. I think that's a throwback in New Zealand to kind of our first-past-the-post system where the belief was whoever was in government also had legislative power, so they may as well just treat them as the same. As one of the government's support partners, the Māori Party's Te Urura Flavel didn't want to answer questions about whether there is a trend towards greater executive power, saying his party just considered each piece of legislation in its own right. On the face of it, you could say that that's happening, but um, I suppose I'm directing that to the national government because all we do is react to the legislation that's put in front of us, and from the Māori Party's perspective, it's not as if we've got an agenda to do that. But should there be fears about the direction the democratic process is taking? Are those without involvement in Parliament or with special links to the government being distanced from the lawmaking process? Claudia Geiringer from Victoria University believes there is a need to clarify urgency provisions and separate them into differing mechanisms. She thinks the different ways urgency is used are confusing for the public and the media and make it more tricky to bring pressure to bear when political decisions are made to move bills through the House without the usual time for reflection, comment and debate. 
In terms of urgency to remove select committee scrutiny, we thought this was sufficiently concerning as to justify some kind of additional constraint. And we suggested that there ought to be an analogy with extraordinary urgency where the Speaker is actually required to agree that, the, that extraordinary urgency is justified in the circumstances. Andrew Geddes believes there needs to be caution over changes that are often made for pragmatic reasons but that can lead to fundamental shifts in power over time. That pragmatism is something Kennedy Graham believes New Zealanders are all too relaxed about. Kiwis are naturally fairly relaxed about the Constitution, I think, to a dangerous degree, uh, to a fault. We're only one of three countries that doesn't have a proper codified constitution. We are unicameral with our legislature. We don't have any entrenched legislation. Our constitutional stability is much more fragile than we think. Uh, and, but we're casual about it. We think all we have to do is be a decent casual society and, and everything will be okay. And I think history around the world shows that that actually is a rather blithe optimistic assumption. The slow increase in what he calls the tolerance for the shortcut also worries Peter Dunn, who feels well-meaning people with no intent to abuse the law or show disrespect for the Constitution resort to the quick solution. He would like to see more priority given to civic process and Parliament as a noble institution rather than as a factory that spews out legislation. With the current generation of politicians who've come in from external careers, often overseas, come in here, make a short-term impact and move on, is that there's not the institutional understanding, there's not that civic appreciation, and therefore there's very much a sense of, yep, fine, how do we resolve this process, let's go on, do it, move on to the next one. While it's understandable, I think it's concerning because it means that you become just a little bit more uh, slipshod about the process, and then suddenly you've found that those rare examples have become the standard by which everything operates. Andrew Geddes says any alteration to the normal processes for legislation lessens the opportunity for public input and participation and could be seen as in some way reducing the democratic process. It's a changed form of democracy, I think. It's a much more directive one. All these things will be done, we've got to remember, in the public's name because it's, quote, what the public wants. So I don't see it as being autocratic in the sense of governments are setting themselves up as dictatorships or anything like that. But insofar as it's lessening the ability of public and individuals to have a say on particular bits of legislation, and insofar as it's moving power away from the directly elected parliament and more into executive agencies, then it is shifting the decisions that are made away from direct public participation and into back rooms. Charles Chevelle thinks the public has clearly signalled it now no longer supports the sort of law-making behaviour that was common under the first-past-the-post voting system. I think the point of MMP having come in was that people were tired of governments in New Zealand being able to be the fastest lawmaker in the West. So the reason that we have the standing orders that we have now under MMP that allows for much more input from all parties across the House was that it, it encapsulates the public's desire to see some limits on government. Lockwood Smith says there is nothing new about the problems surrounding the sometimes excessive use of urgency, or on the other side of the coin, opposition tactics of delay such as filibustering. But he feels there is a need to improve the situation. What is driving the Standing Orders Committee, though, is a, a recognition of public concern about the need for 
maximum opportunity for the public to be involved in the legislative process and obviously there's more chance for the public to be involved when the process is a more measured process that allows time at the appropriate stages for that kind of input. Simon Power says the parliamentary process is important but he also believes a government has an imperative to get things done. In the end we're here to do things and get on with it. And look, I'm sure various academics that have taken an interest in this thing have a, have a model in mind. But I tell you, politics is pretty pragmatic. And actually one of the greatest skills you need as a legislator is the ability to count to 62. And though, once you've got those things lined up, that's when you get on and make decisions. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's all from Insight for this week. The programme was written and presented by me, Philippa Tolley. It was produced by Gail Woods. Technical production was by Damon Taylor. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at radionz underscore insight.